Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, March 27th, 2022. My name is Melanie C., a recovered compulsive overeater living in Canby, Oregon. The share ID numbers for Friday, March 25th, 2022, are the following. A 7 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study. Share ID number is 18736, 18,736. And 18737, 18,737 for the 10 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study Group. This morning, A Vision for You presents God's Search and Rescue Mission for Dr. Bob, Exploring Dr. Bob's Nightmare. It would be grand to know that we, too, have a story like Dr. Bob's where God had commissioned a search and rescue mission on our behalf. Has God been there all along? Perhaps there is no, there are no mistakes. Is there anything that one can do to circumvent the power outside of ourselves? Hmm. Our guest speaker today will explore this with us through Dr. Bob's nightmare. Well, you know, we cannot begin to speak about Dr. Bob without backing up a bit to share about Bill Wilson. Wilson is from New York City with quite a colorful past, an alcoholic of the type that is regarded as hopeless. Yet, he sobered up. He had been sober for about five months and had traveled from New York to Akron, Ohio in 1935 on a business trip, not related to Alcoholics Anonymous, rather for a shareholders meeting and a proxy fight, which did not turn out his way, I want to tell you. And that's bad news for anyone, let alone a newly sobered alcoholic of Wilson's description. Well, after losing the proxy fight, Bill Wilson found himself alone and depressed, and according to all accounts of the events, not in good spirits, not in good shape. Wilson felt a strong draw towards the bar in the Mayflower Hotel where he was staying. You know, that sound, the tobacco in the air, the smell of the whiskey, the gaiety over there, the clinking of the glasses. He was having a heck of a time fighting that. Desperately frightening of a slip and itching and anxiousness to maintain his sobriety. His immediate reaction was, I've got to find another alcoholic. I've got to find another alcoholic. Well, there are conflicting versions of exactly what did happen next, but according to the Alcoholics Anonymous website, Bill W., being so shaken, despairing, and almost hopeless, put himself into a telephone booth at the hotel. Dialing various people, he found that he was eventually introduced to an Akron surgeon, forever to be remembered simply as Dr. Bob. The surgeon had struggled for years with his own drinking problem. The two had had their first meeting on May 12, 1935. The effect the meeting had on Dr. Bob was immediate, and soon he too put down the bottle never to pick it up again. The bond formed between the two men would grow into a movement that would literally affect the lives of millions and millions of people across the world. This marks the official date of Alcoholics Anonymous, June 10th, 1935. It's a red banner day for anybody else that followed and certainly for those of us that are compulsive overeaters. What are we going to enjoy today is the story of Dr. Bob, how a man of esteemed training and regard a man with great religious faith practice found himself stumbling into his home with a potted plant in hand for the missus passed out underneath the table on the day before Mother's Day 
as a co-founder of X-Problem Drinkers. Now that's a spiritual calling, isn't it? So with eager anticipation to hear the details of such a life unwrapped and how it came to be, we are on the edges of our seats, so let's wait no longer. Today our guest speaker is Janet B. Janet has studied Dr. Bob's nightmare and is here today to pass on what, on what she has learned. Janet shares her personal recovery utilizing the textbook of Alcoholics Anonymous. She's a teacher and a mentor and such a friend, not only to a vision for you, but to OA at large. She has been in these rooms for a good long time, helping the still suffering compulsive overeater. Janet hails from the fabulous state of New Jersey. A vision for you is very grateful to have her here with us today. So please help me welcome to the line this morning, Janet B. Good morning, Janet. Good morning, Melanie. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, hey everyone, I'm Janet B. from New Jersey. I've recovered from compulsive eating. Happy to be here this morning to talk about God's search and rescue mission for Dr. Bob. Um, so we're all allowed to have our own concept of God. Here's mine. God created the world in six days, took a day off to rest, and instead of spending the rest of eternity watching Netflix, he just decided he'd spend his time launching search and rescue programs for addicts. He performed miracles in biblical times and he's still doing them today, right? I mean, our book says that the age of miracles is still with us and it is. So here's the story of one of God's most successful search and rescue missions, the story of Dr. Bob, one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, the other one, of course, being Bill Wilson. So Dr. Bob's story is in the big book right after the chapter, A Vision for You. Um, if you have a big book, we're on page 171. But before we talk about exactly how God rescued Dr. Bob, let's get some background on him. So Dr. Bob starts out by saying, I was born in a small New England village of about 7,000 souls. And he goes on to say, everything was fine. His parents were fine. The town was fine. They were moral, good. He had a good childhood. So his parents were great, but he became an addict anyway. And I think, think that's really important for a couple reasons. First, if we as parents do good jobs and our kids turn out, I don't know, not going to med school, not going to church, not doing what we think, we don't have to blame ourselves. And I think also it's important because a lot of us say, well, the reason I'm a compulsive eater is because and then we usually blame someone, and it's usually our parents, right? But Dr. Bob didn't, um, and neither did the author of the story, Freedom from Bondage. She actually said, I'm the re I am the way I am as the way I reacted to what happened to me as a child. So what that's teaching me is that it's always on me. Am I going to forgive? Or am I going to blame? Um, because ultimately, the fact that I'm a compulsive eater has nothing to do with how I was raised. It has to do with the way I lived my life. And Dr. Bob makes that clear. He continues on page 172 and says, I was the only child which perhaps engendered the selfishness which played an important part in bringing on my alcoholism. Now, of course, if we're only children, or we have only one child, we shouldn't get all freaked out saying, oh my God, this is setting the stage for alcoholism. 
because Dr. Bob didn't say it was the only child part. He said it was the selfishness part. And later on, he really digs in and defines it. He says, my whole life seems to be centered around doing what I wanted to do without regard for the rights, wishes, or privileges of anyone else, a state of mind which became more and more predominant as the years passed. Well, I think that's interesting, right? We always talk about this illness as being progressive, and it is, but we usually think of that progression in terms of food and binges, or binges getting worse. But Dr. Bob is talking about the progression even before binging. He's talking about the progression of his selfishness and self-centeredness getting worse and worse. And that makes sense, right? Page 62 of our text says that selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of our troubles. So Dr. Bob was right on the money by saying that selfishness and self-centeredness is the root. Um, I actually drew a little picture of a tree in my big book and I drew roots under the tree and I wrote the words selfish and self-centeredness right by the roots. But the thing about roots is you don't always see them, right? We can be very good at hiding our selfishness and self-centeredness. I know I was. But on a tree, you see the fruit. So I drew these three little clumsy circles that look like apples. And in one, I wrote resentment. In one, I wrote fear. And in the third one, I wrote harms, because that's the fruit of this illness. So anyway, there's Dr. Bob saying he was selfish and self-centered. And you can even see it by the example he gave. He said, yeah, my parents made me go to church. And basically, I showed them. As soon as I was old enough, I decided I would never go to church. Interesting, right? He turns his back on God. But he makes an exception. He says, I'll never go to church unless circumstances make it seem unwise to absent myself. So basically, he was using church, right? I'll go to church in, um, if it'll make my parents not be mad at me or if it'll help me look good for a job. Basically, he used God and church in a self-centered, self-serving way. So that made me think sometimes we should ask ourselves, do we use our religion? Do we use God? Do we ignore God except when we want to treat him like a genie in the bottle? Like, God, things aren't working out too well. Maybe I'm having trouble with food. So I say, God, please come down and make everything good again. And if you do, thanks. I'll call you again when I need you. And if you don't, well, then I'll just ignore you even more. That didn't work for me, and it didn't work for Dr. Bob. So Dr. Bob continues talking about the progression of his selfishness. And he says, through college, through medical school, he was drinking. And something I noticed this time when I read this story um, on page 174, it says that his father, when he was in college, made a long journey in the vain endeavor to get him straightened out, but it had little effect. So it actually made me think about Dr. Bob's dad. He had a dad who really loved him, but that love wasn't enough to get him sober because when we have this illness, we are beyond human aid. Um, I wonder if Dr. Bob's dad died before Dr. Bob got sober and if he ever knew. Um, but Dr. Bob's dad loved on him, and Dr. Bob felt it. He mentioned his dad's attempt to help him more than once in his story. 
And that made me think of times we might do something for people out of love and never get to see the results, right? Imagine if Dr. Bob's dad had said, you know what, I'm not going to try to help my son again. I'm not seeing any results here. Forget it. I give up. Well, maybe none of us would be here. But Dr. Bob's dad still tried. And what that teaches me is that I should love, even when it's difficult and even when I don't see the fruit right away. So Bob graduates med school and becomes Dr. Bob on the bottom of page 174. Every mother's dream, right? Um, but on the bottom of that page, he says, by this time, I was beginning to pay very dearly physically and in hope of relief, voluntarily incarcerated myself at least half a dozen times in one of the local sanitariums. Okay, this is a guy who really wanted to get better. I mean, six times at least he had himself committed. Um, he said, I need to be locked up because I can't stop drinking. So he had a desire to stop. But as we know, desire alone doesn't do it, right? On page 24, we're told that at the certain point in the drinking of every abnormal drinker, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. And Dr. Bob had a desperate desire to stop drinking, but he didn't have the power. So when the obsession struck, he did what any reasonable addict did. He got his friends to smuggle alcohol into the rehab or he'd steal the alcohol in the building. So he actually got worse in rehab. And that was actually me, my first seven years in OA. I had a desperate desire to stop. I went to meetings. I had, I kid you not, about 50 different sponsors. I did the work they told me, um, but I got progressively worse. I went from binging and purging twice a week to throwing up up to six times a day and needing major surgery on my esophagus. Like Dr. Bob, I had the desire. I did a bunch of work. But I was like someone with diabetes who just goes to Diabetics Anonymous without ever being taught how to inject insulin. I got worse, and so did Dr. Bob, because desire alone doesn't do it. We should never tell anyone that if they're still in the food, oh, you just don't want it badly enough. I wanted it badly enough, and so did Dr. Bob, and he drank even in rehab. I mean, right, if we want to get it, we're going to get it. Or maybe a better way to say it is if the illness demands that we get it, we're going to get it. We have no say about it. I once heard a woman say that she, similar to Dr. Bob, locked herself up in rehab for compulsive eating and then sent herself a candy gram. Um, but it shouldn't be surprising, right, because our program tells us that unless we're protected by God, we have no choice when it comes to food. So there's Dr. Bob not getting better. And again, his dad's trying to help him. His dad sends a doctor out from his hometown. And he's okay for a bit, but then prohibition is announced. Um, the country's going to go dry. So he says, well, I may as well get drunk now because in a month when prohibition starts, it'll be illegal to drink. So I may as well do it now. But of course, there were bootleggers. People who really wanted it were able to get alcohol anyway. 
And that reminds me of what I had been guilty of when I was binging, right? When Dr. Bob said, I'll start when prohibition start. That's what I call the I'll start tomorrow syndrome. Um, right? So here's Dr. Bob. I'll start with prohibition. Or for me, I'll start tomorrow or Monday or the first of the month or the first of the year. The I'll start tomorrow syndrome um, is really me thinking my cure is my pillow. That if I put my head on it for seven hours, I'm suddenly going to wake up miraculously cured. I think they have commercials for something called a miracle pillow. Well, this would be a true miracle pillow. Seven hours with your head on it, cured of any addiction. But of course, it didn't work for Dr. Bob, and it didn't work for me either. So there he is, and Dr. Bob goes on like this, drinking, passing out at home, going to work, just so he could be at the hospital long enough to keep his job and earn money to drink. And he kept this up for 17 years. 17 years. And during this time, he says, I used to promise my wife, my friends, and my children that I would drink no more. Promises which seldom kept me sober, even through the day, though I was very sincere when I made them. Heartbreaking, right? Um, he was sincere. He had a desire. But desire doesn't do it. Imagine someone who has cancer going to their wife, their friends, and their children and saying, I promise you, I will make my cancer cells stop multiplying. It would be heartbreaking because we know that person had zero power on their own without intervention to make their cancer cells stop multiplying. And Dr. Bob had zero power to make himself stop drinking. And I had zero power to make myself stop binging. So he went on like this, and then on page 178, he talks about a group of people he found, and he says, they attracted me because of their seeming poise, health, and happiness. So this was the Oxford group. This was a Christian spiritual group that helped people with different problems, and he said he was attracted by their poise, poise, a self-confidence, but not based on pride. It's based on confidence that God's got my back and God's taking care of me so I can be comfortable in any situation. And that's what these people had. And he said they had great freedom from embarrassment. They were at ease on all occasions and appeared healthy, but most of all, they seemed happy. So again, that's a trait that we should have in recovery, that people can look at us and not say, oh my gosh, I know she's in recovery, but she just looks so sad and tired like all this work she's doing to help others and stay abstinent, it's just dragging her down and she has no time to even wash her hair. No, we are not supposed to be like that. We are supposed to exude happiness, joy, and freedom. That is a promise of this program. That is a real, I promise you guys, that is a real fruit of this program. So anyway, Dr. Bob, he's no dummy. He looks at himself and sees that he's ill at ease, his health was at the breaking point, and he is thoroughly miserable. And he said, I sensed they had something I didn't have from which I might profit. And I learned it was something of a spiritual nature, which didn't appeal to me very much. So at least he was honest about it. He's like, okay, they're happy, they're healthy, they're poised, blah, blah, blah. And it's the result of something spiritual. And okay, I don't like it. But he said, I thought it could do no harm, 
So I gave the matter time and study for two and a half years, but still got drunk every night. And isn't that a lot of us? I mean, I remember reading program literature while I was binging. It was like if I had cancer and I'm reading a manual on how chemotherapy works, but if I'm not injecting the chemo, I'm not going to get better. That was me and that was Dr. Bob reading incessantly, reading about God, but not getting better. And in a lovely testimony to his wife, he says on page 178, how my wife kept her faith and courage during all those years, I'll never know, but she did. If she had not, I know I would have been dead a long time ago. His wife had courage and she had faith. The word courage always makes me think of the Wizard of Oz and the Cowardly Lion. And I think, what did that lion do, right? He continued on to Oz, even though he had fear. And he had friends who propped him up when things got difficult. So in recovery, when we need courage, when we need to keep going, even when it's scary and hard, hopefully we have friends to help prop us up along the yellow brick road. Um, Dr. Bob also said that his wife's faith kept him alive. Well, how come? How could someone's faith keep him alive? What's the correlation here? Um, I believe that faith actually does something in the spiritual world. You know, in the physical world, if I want to buy groceries or fill my car with gas, I hand the, you know, the clerk a credit card or a $20 bill. Well, if I want to fill my car with gas, I guess I'd better hand him a $50 bill, right? Money is the currency in the physical world. Um, but I can't hand God a $50 bill and say help. Faith and prayer is the currency in the spiritual world. It's how we communicate with our creator. And maybe it was her faith, her whispered prayers that led God to say, my next search and rescue mission will be for her husband. Or maybe it was because at that point, Dr. Bob said at one of the Oxford group meetings, held at the house of Henrietta Sieberling, or Cyberling, I don't know. Remember that name, it'll come up again. Um, she was on God's search and rescue mission for Bob, clearly. Anyway, at the meeting at Henrietta's house, Dr. Bob said, guys, I have this confession to make. I'm an alcoholic. And you know, I can just picture them all sitting there chuckling behind their hands a little bit, like, yeah, okay, Bob, tell us something we don't know already. They all knew he was an alcoholic. But Henrietta, classy woman that she was, said, we'll pray for you. And there they were praying for him. So their faith, coupled with the faith of Dr. Bob's wife, and what was the result? Well, let's flip back a couple pages, and we're going to see the results of all that prayer. So we're going to go back a bit to the chapter, A Vision for You, on page 155 where we find our other co-founder, Bill Wilson, a man who had recently been on the receiving end of one of God's successful search and rescue missions. Bill Wilson didn't live anywhere near Dr. Bob, but he just happened to be near him on a business trip. Hmm. So Bill was there, newly sober. His business deal had gone down the tube. He was not in good health. He had no money and he was physically weak, a recipe for disaster. But remember, he had worked this program 
So he had a connection with God. And so Bill said, I'd better do something. So he went to the payphone, right? There were no cell phones then. You went to a payphone, you plugged in a dime, and, you know, you got to talk to someone for three minutes or so. And by the payphone was a list of half a dozen churches. And he said, I need to find someone who's going to give me a drunk to try to help because that's what I have to do to stay sober. He called all six churches, and not until the sixth one did he get a pastor who said, I'll get you in touch with this woman who has a spiritual group in her house. Maybe she can help. So Bill Wilson calls Henrietta. And when she answers the phone, he says, hey, my name is Bill. I'm in town for business. I'm newly sober. Do you know any drunks that I can help? And she simply said, we've been expecting you. We've been expecting you. She knew that her prayers were going to work. So it wasn't like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe God answered. You know, honey, listen, someone's on the phone. Maybe we can get some help for Bob. Uh-uh. Yeah. We prayed for help for Bob. We didn't know how it would come, but we knew it would come. That's praying with faith. Because God isn't limited by how we think things will happen. She might have thought he was going to get sober in the Oxford group. But she said, we've been expecting you. And so what happened next? She invited Bill over and she called Dr. Bob's wife and said, Ann, can you bring him over here tomorrow to talk to this guy? And Dr. Bob said to his wife, fine, but I'm not going there, going for any more than 15 minutes. So I did a little research in the conference approved book, Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age, about um, how Bill prepped for this first call. And Bill talked to Dr. Silkworth, who wrote the doctor's opinion. And because Bill hadn't had much success before. And Dr. Silkworth said to him, look, Bill, you're having nothing but failure because you're preaching at these alcoholics. You're talking to them about the Oxford Group precepts of being absolutely honest, absolutely pure, absolutely unselfish, and absolutely loving. This is a very big order. Then you top it off by harping on this mysterious spiritual experience of yours. No wonder they point their finger to their heads and go out and get drunk. Why don't you turn your strategy the other way around? No, Bill, you've got the cart before the horse. Yes, you have to talk about a spiritual experience, but you've got to deflate these people first. So first, give them the medical business and give it to them hard. Pour it right into them about the obsession that condemns them. Coming from one alcoholic to another, maybe that will crack those tough egos deep down. Only then can you begin to try out your other medicine, the ethical principles you've picked up from the Oxford groups. So I personally find that fascinating. Basically, Dr. Silkworth said, the first thing we have to do is to help someone to see that they are powerless and their life is unmanageable. And maybe that's why, for me, going to a therapist or going the religious route never helped me stop binging. Because what Dr. Silkworth basically said is you have to take a first step. First, you have to admit you're powerless and your life is a total train wreck ego deflation at great depth. 
So that's what Bill Wilson did. He went in there and instead of like getting all spiritual and telling him like, Bob, you have to be 100% honest, 100% loving, 100% loving, 100% pure, or you're never going to stop. I'm sure he spent a lot of those six hours just sharing stories about how he used to drink um, and how he would say, I'm just going to have one, but he would keep drinking until he pretty much lost everything. So I'm sure he's telling Bob that. And I'm sure Dr. Bob was saying things like, yeah, I drink like that too. I did that too. And Dr. Bob went in there saying he was only going to stay for 15 minutes, but ended up being there over six hours. And I'm sure once Dr. Bob admitted his powerless, um, Bill Wilson told him what he had to do. He had to have a spiritual experience. And Dr. Bob was willing, but not quite willing enough. Um, on page 55, we see Dr. Bob saying, a spiritual experience was absolutely necessary, but the price seemed high upon the basis suggested. Why, Dr. Bob argued, should I foolishly admit my problem to my client? He would do anything he said but that. And as we'll see, his but that would get him into trouble. So Bill stayed with Dr. Bob for three weeks, and he worked with him. And Dr. Bob stopped drinking for three weeks, and then he went to a medical conference where, unfortunately, he got drunk again. And I find it fascinating what happened next. Dr. Bob gets drunk at this conference, drunk on the way home, wakes up drunk at a friend's house, not even knowing how he got there. The friend called his wife, who called Bill. And what did Bill do? He didn't say, Bob, I gave three weeks of my life to helping you, to working with you so you would get better. And this is how you repaid me? How dare you do this to me? Or did he say, I told you so. I told you you shouldn't go away with so little time under your belt. I'm on the next train back to New York. Goodbye and good luck. He did not do that. Here's what Dr. Bob said he did. He came and got me home and to bed. He took him home. He put him to bed. I mean, think about putting a drunk alcoholic to bed. Bob probably smelled. Bob, um, Bill probably took the shoes off Dr. Bob's dirty feet and covered him with an afghan. And Bill stayed with him overnight. And there's an interesting line I, was, I always wondered about on page 180. It says that the next morning, he gave him a glass of beer. And I'm thinking, why on earth did he give him a glass of beer the next day? But I researched it, and here's why. Dr. Bob was scheduled to do a surgery that only he could do a couple days right after he got back from that conference gone bad. And he was shaking so badly that Bill gave him a glass of beer to steady his hand so that he could perform the surgery. So we should not take that line in the book about Bill giving Bob a glass of beer to say that if someone goes out and binges, we're supposed to give them one Milky Way the next day. I'm just saying, we're not supposed to do that. This was for a very specific person and for a specific reason so that his hand wouldn't shake. He did the surgery, which by the way was successful. And by the way, Dr. Bob never drank again, 
because right after that surgery, he went around the town and he told all the people he didn't want to tell that he was an alcoholic. So basically his I'll do anything but that became I'll do anything. And we know that's critical, right? Page 58 tells us that if you have decided you want what we have, what do we have? A spiritual experience based on these steps and are willing to go to any length to get it, any length, then, and I say then and only then, are you ready to take certain steps? Because if we're not, it won't work. So Bob became willing and never drank again. And he spent the last couple of pages in his story talking about his recovery and giving us many pearls of wisdom. First he says, okay, you may be asking, what did that man, Bill, do or say that was different from what others had said or done? Because we can assume, Dr. Bob, he read the Bible, he read spiritual literature, he's been around spiritual people, he was a doctor. What was different? Well, first he says, Bill gave him correct information. And I would couple that with love. Dr. Bob wasn't a project to Bill. Bill loved on him. I mean, there's love. If you're going to take a drunk man home, take his shoes off, put him to bed and stay with him. So love and good information. Dr. Bob says, of far more importance was the fact he was the first living human with whom I had ever talked who knew what he was talking about in regard to alcoholism from actual experience. In other words, he talked my language. And that lines up with what it says in the forward to the third edition, that recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic, sharing experience, strength, and hope. But I thought about that, like, does recovery really begin there? Like, I would have thought recovery begins, I don't know, maybe when someone takes a first step. But they're saying, no, it begins when one alcoholic talks to another. How come? I think it's because when that something happens there, there's more than a conveying of information. There is a transmission, and there's a difference. Bill Wilson was transmitting something to Bob. I looked up the definition of transmission. It says something like light, heat, sound, electricity, or other energy passes through a medium, like telephones transmitting sound waves. And I think that in God's search and rescue mission for Dr. Bob, God used Bill to transmit his own love and concern for Bob, right? And if we go back to page 164 at the end of the chapter of Vision for You, it talks about this kind of transmission. It says you cannot transmit something you haven't got. So see to it that your relationship with him with God is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. See to it that your relationship with God is right. That's the condition for us being able to transmit God's love, God's energy to someone else. What does that mean, that our relationship with God is right? Well, remember, when Bill Wilson first got sober and was in the hospital, he says, the thought came to me that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They in turn could help others. But before Bill could be fit for this work, he had to see to it that his relationship with God was right. How did he do it? How do we all do it? 
page 164 sums it up. Abandon yourself to God as you understand him. Basically, give God a blank check with our lives. Admit your faults to him. Okay, that's a little hard. And to your fellows. Okay, that's a lot hard. Um, Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you found and join us. And Bill did that. Bill made those calls, six calls. He didn't just make two and say, you know what, I tried, I give up. Um, then he went over to this strange woman, Henrietta's house. He called on his, um, a doctor, Dr. Silkworth, to brainstorm on the best way to help this guy he's never met. He spends six hours with him, stays in that town for three weeks, and then when he finally thinks he's helped someone, Dr. Bob probably breaks his heart a bit by coming home drunk. But he kept at it with Dr. Bob and thank God, because if he hadn't, none of us would be here today. Every now and then, someone will say something bad about Bill Wilson, like, oh, he did this thing and that thing that wasn't right. And what I say to that is, first, I wasn't there and I don't know, and it's none of my business. But more important, look what Bill did for me, for you, for us. I, that's what I think of when I think of Bill Wilson. So back to our text on page 180, um, Dr. Bob says, it's the most wonderful blessing to be relieved of the terrible curse with which I was afflicted. He says he's regained his health, his self-respect, and his home life is ideal. And then he says he spends a great deal of time passing this on to others who want it and need it badly. And he says he does it for four reasons, a sense of duty, it's a pleasure because in doing so, he's paying his debt to the person who carried the message to him and as an insurance policy against drinking again. So first, it's a duty. I mean, the truth is, and I'll admit it, I don't always, 100% of the time, want to pick up the phone and take those calls. I don't want to take my time when I could be doing something more fun for me. God hasn't 100% finished on me yet, and I'm still selfish sometimes. So some days, yes, I do it just out of duty. But often, and I have to say, truthfully, more often as time goes by, it's for the second reason. It's a pleasure. I think the more we grow spiritually, the more what we are supposed to do and what we want to do become the same. The more we grow spiritually, the more what we're supposed to do and what we want to do become the same. Then his third reason, because in doing so, I'm paying my debt to the man who took time to pass it on to me. That's gratitude in action. Um, I'm paying a debt to my sponsors who've spent so much time and effort dealing with me. And I have to tell you that when I hear my sponsees sponsoring someone else or speaking at a meeting about um, the miracles that God has done in their life, removing their food obsession, just the beginning. It just makes my heart like dance with joy. And last, Dr. Bob says, every time I do it, I take out a little more insurance for myself against the possible slip. It is our best insurance policy, right? Um, the first line of chapter seven, the chapter working with others, says nothing will so much ensure immunity against alcoholism as intensive work with other alcoholics. So that tells me the way I get immunity 
right? Like, um, like a vaccine against COVID, immunity against it, immunity against compulsive eating so that the illness can't touch me is intensive work with other compulsive eaters. So Dr. Bob continues by saying he used to get upset when he saw his friends drinking, but realized that he couldn't. So he schooled himself to believe that though he once had the same privilege, he abused it so frightfully it was withdrawn. So we can do that, right? We can say to ourselves, self, I used to have the privilege to be able to eat like that or whatever, um, but I abuse that privilege, so now it's gone. Just like if we get in too many car accidents, our privilege to have a driver's license is withdrawn. Um, then Dr. Bob starts talking some tough love. He says, if you think you're an atheist, an agnostic, or skeptic, or have any other form of intellectual pride, which keeps you from accepting what's in this book, I feel sorry for you. It's interesting that he calls atheism, agnosticism, and skepticism forms of intellectual pride. Because what is that? That's really me thinking, God, I don't need you. I can do it on my own. And I also love how he doesn't say, if you're an atheist, agnostic, or skeptic. He says, if you think you're an atheist, agnostic, or a skeptic, meaning you may think you are, but you're really not. Well, how could he make that claim, right? That's like a pretty bold claim. So I was thinking about it, and I guess it would be like me thinking, I have no lungs inside of myself. I could think it, right? This is America. I'm free to think what I want. So I could be a lung atheist, right? I don't believe I have lungs. But of course, what I think about my lack of lungs doesn't matter. And in fact, our book tells us on page 55, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. My favorite line in the book, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. So between those two lungs that God gave me, he planted the fundamental idea of himself. And the big book says this fundamental idea of God inside of us may be obscured, right? Like, like if I have cataracts, my vision is obscured. Um, so if I have spiritual cataracts, it obscures my view of God, but it's there. And in fact, page 55 tells us what are the three spiritual cataracts, pomp, calamity, and worship of other things. Pomp, right? thinking too much of myself. I don't need God if I'm God. Calamity. All these bad things are happening. If there was a God, why would he allow human trafficking, a war in Ukraine, you know, this relative to die of cancer, um, calamity, or worship of other things? What are my idols? What are the things that I say, I can't be happy unless unless my kids are successful, unless I get married, unless I have children, unless, um, you know, whatever our I can't be happy unless dot, dot, dot. That's our worship of other things and will obscure our vision of God. Um, we could talk about this for hours and hours. It's my favorite topic, and it's so important. Um, but for now, let's just suffice it to say, Dr. Bob says, 
you may think you're an agnostic, but you're not. That just makes me feel so loved, right? Loved by God. He planted the idea of himself within me. That's how much he wants me to know him. And it's almost like an invitation. Don't have so much pride that you block yourself off from the sunlight of the spirit. So Dr. Bob continues on with his tough love. If you think you're strong enough to do it your way, that's your affair. Like, we're not going to try and convince you that you really need this. Um, but if you really want to quit for good and all, he says, not just to look good for your high school reunion, right, so that boy who dumped you when you were 17 feels bad. If you really want to quit for good and all and feel you need help, he says, we know we have an answer for you. And then here's his conditional promise. It never fails, but here's the condition we have to meet. It never fails if you go about it with one half the zeal you've been in the habit of showing when you were getting another drink. Well, I know I personally put a lot of zeal into getting my binge foods. I stole food. I stole money for food. I walked the streets of New York City at 2 a.m. with my rent money to find an open bodega. Um, today, I have to put that kind of zeal into my recovery. And then, um, if we do this work, we are promised, promised, it will never fail. And on the last line, he tells us why. Because our Heavenly Father will never let us down. God will never let us down. I believe that every single one of us is here because God has launched a search and rescue mission for us. And he's given us a manual, the big book, and people to help us so that we can recover and then join God on his search and rescue mission for others. The way that Bill and Henrietta and Dr. Bob's wife and Dr. Bob's dad were all part of the search and rescue team for Dr. Bob. What a glorious sense of purpose for all of us. And what a glorious God to give it to us. And with that, I pass. Thank you so much. Chandler, are you still there with us? I hope. That was beautiful. What a presentation of what you've learned and studied. I'm here. As a result, good deal. As a result of Dr. Bob's experience, you know, I was just reflecting that what, a, what an opportunity is for us to identify in, in this particular hopeless, seemingly hopeless state, to be able to see, in fact, it's a lifelong journey towards a special, special search and rescue mission of being called upon to become sober. And just exactly how to do that. And we study that each and every day in the big book throughout the week at A Vision for You. Thanks again for putting so much of yourself into this particular study and bringing it to, uh, bringing it to life here today. Thank you, Janet. So let's see. You know what? The share ID number for today, Sunday, March 27, 2022, is 18742. And I wanted to let you all know that we will ask Janet for her contact information at the conclusion of the meeting. So have pen and paper ready for that and listen for when that comes a little bit later on here today. The lines are now open for questions. If you have a question for Janet about the presentation today that she was speaking about, please unmute your phone by pressing star one on your phone keypad. Offer your first name and the first initial of your last name and perhaps your state. And once you've asked your question, please press star one again immediately in order to have a quiet line. Who would like to ask Janet a question? 
Sarah Leah. Jason, Jason K. Sarah Leah. Jason K. Who else, please? Star one, if I didn't mention that too, if you had a question. Jason K. Gotcha, Jason, thanks. Okay, so let's talk with Sarah Leah first and her question, and then we'll move on to Jason K. I know I'll open it up again. Hey, Sarah Leah. Uh, thank you so much for that unbelievable presentation. Um, Mike, I just want you to repeat something that you said about, you know, that saying, you know, you're happy, you're as happy as your happiest child. What you said about that, you said that, ugh, you said that um, that was placing the children before God or some such. If you could repeat that little part, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I didn't say that expression yours. I, I know the expression you're talking about. It's an expression um, some people say, a mother is only as happy as her least happy child. So yes. again, I, I try and have like no opinion on outside issues. Um, and so I'm not gonna say like, well, what should or shouldn't make us happy. However, I will say, for myself that I spent a lot of years um, pinning my happiness on how well my children were doing. Well, both how well they were doing and how much they loved me. My biggest fear was that once they turned 18, they would leave the house and never talk to me again. And so I parented not out of what, how is it God's will for me to parent, but I parented out of that fear. What can I do to ensure that my kids will love and adore me, you know, all the time, even when we're all, you know, old and they don't have to listen to me anymore. And then I realized I was making an idol out of them. I wasn't looking to see what God's will was. I was looking to really get my will done to ensure that, you know, I wouldn't be a lonely old lady because my kids have deserted me and that's selfish. And likewise, if I were to say, um, I mean, I want my kids to be happy, but I can honestly say for myself, my mood does not fluctuate based on my kids' happiness. Um, that, and I want them to be successful in whatever they choose to do. But if they're not, um, I can be happy anyway, as long as I'm looking at God's will. And just real quick, the best way I think of this is I picture in my head me swimming in one of those lap pools where the lanes are marked off and God's at the end and I'm swimming toward God. And in the other lanes are things that are none of my business. If I swim into that lane, I'm veering away from God. If I let people from those lanes into my lane, I'm veering away from God. So it's like this morning, Sunday morning, I would love it if my kids go to church. They're away in college. I have no idea if they are, and I don't ask them because that's not in my lane. So those are just some things that helped me. So hopefully that's helpful to you. Thank you so much, Sarah Leah, for your question. Jason Kay, your question for Janet, and then we're gonna ask others who might have a question this morning. Hi, Jason. Hi, thanks, Melanie. Thanks, Janet. Um, I always look at this story of Dr. Bob relapsing um, at this conference and then coming back. And I noticed, like, he didn't go back to step one. He didn't rewrite inventory. 
he picked up where he was stuck. He started making amends and just uh, publicly kind of uh, making things right. And I wonder if that provides any insight or inspiration to you and how you approach relapse. Do you bring people back to step one or do you look kind of like what Dr. Bob did? Where was, where, where is this person stuck or previously unwilling to do something and try to problem solve from that perspective? And I'd be curious of your thoughts on that. Thanks. Yeah, that is a great question. I actually did um, a, a special edition of Vision for You. It's called Pitfalls in Recovery, and it's about what leads to relapse and what to do about it. But I agree with you 100%. I think that um, the thing to do that I was taught is that if someone goes into relapse, they review and see kind of why did they, why are they in relapse? Now, maybe it's because they never took a first step, but if it's because there's this one amend they've refused to make, well, then I think the thing to just, they have to make that amend just like Dr. Bob did. Right. Bill absolutely didn't take them back to the beginning. You know, he looked at where Dr. Bob was stuck and he said, and Dr. Bob knew that's what he had to go do. So I think that's what we have to do. We have to just kind of find out where, um, what pit we fell into, what relapse pit we fell into, and get ourselves out and fix it right from there. I agree with you 100%. Thanks. Thank you for your question, Jason Kay. Who else has a question this morning of Janet B? Press star one, please, and I can take your name. Melissa C. Hi, my Melissa name is Shana, Shana R. with a question. Shana R. Stacy K. Stacy K. Mia Would that H. Be all voices. Oh, hey, Mia. Mia H. I think we have all voices here. Okay, we have Melissa C, Shana R, Stacey K, and Mia H. First up, Melissa C, what's your question, please? Everyone else, star one, please. Hey, Janet, thank you. Thanks so much for your beautiful share this morning. I was hoping you could speak about um, when you get a sponsee who says, um, I don't believe in God. Like, I just absolutely don't believe in God. And um, where do you start with, with someone like that? Thanks. Okay. Um, so starting from the position that deep down in every man, woman, and child is a fundamental belief in God, I would help them look at what prejudices they may have. And early in We Agnostics, it talks about that. There's a chapter that really has a bunch of prejudices. And to go through it, um, the first I'd say, are you willing to believe in God? And if they're not willing, I personally would say I'm probably not the right sponsor for them. Not to say they couldn't recover, but I, this is how I know how to work it. If they're willing, then it's generally just clearing away the spiritual cataracts. And then um, I really go to the ABCs on page 60, right? Do you believe you're a compulsive eater and can't manage your own life? Yes. It's generally yes. Do you believe no human power could relieve your compulsive eating? 
generally yes. Then C, do you believe that God could and would if he were thought? And I break it down um, into a lot of parts. Do you believe that God could for other people? And they always say yes. Do you believe that God could for you if he wanted to? He may not want to, but could he if he wanted to? And begrudgingly, they have to say, well, yeah, he's, he could. Do you believe he will if you seek him? And that's where a lot of people get stuck. And I found there's generally like five things people get stuck on. And so I find out where they're stuck and go through it with them. But again, it's be, um, and I think once a sponsor takes the time to go through it with someone carefully to see where their blocks are, why they think God would do it for other people, but not for them, um, then, you know, then I think it's, um, people generally don't have a hard time after that. Thanks. Thank you, Melissa C, for your question. Shana R., your question is next, and then Stacy will follow you. Hi, Shana, star one, please. Hi, um, my name is Shana R. And um, Melissa, um, first of all, thank you, Janet. That was really very inspirational. Um, Melissa stole some of my thunder of uh, the question, which is um, there, there seems to be at times a bit of a contradiction um, in how it works. It does seem the first paragraph does seem to um, put forth a class of people who, who just can't, who do not uh, believe in God and perhaps never will. Um, stating there are such unfortunates, they are not at fault, they seem to have been born that way. So um, there seems to be putting forth a group of people who who just will never believe in God. But um, I basically um, was wondering that when you, you hit those folks um, who, um, who are in that group, um, should you, again, continue working with them if they simply um, are in that group? first group of unfortunates who will just never, um, never be able to um, develop that belief. That's my question. Thanks so much. So I think my reading of page 58, the first paragraph, is they're talking about honesty. Um, the unfortunates they're talking about are people who um, are constitutionally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of liver living which demands rigorous honesty. So I don't believe they're talking about God at all at this point. They're just talking about being honest, um, which of course is a prerequisite to um, getting better in this program and getting a relationship with God. Because as it says in that paragraph, um, basically God won't coexist with dishonesty, that we have to, that we're people who have to be rigorously honest. So I don't, I may be wrong, but I don't read this paragraph as talking about God. They're at this point, they're just talking about the requirement to be honest. Thank you very much, Shana R. For your question, Stacey Kay, you're next for your question, and then Mia will follow you. Hi, Mel. I'm Stacey Kay in Colorado. Thanks for your service. And Janet, that was great. I did come in late, so I might have missed part um, of what you presented. I'll go back and listen. But um, I was thinking about um, the part in his 
I don't know if it's in the story. I just heard this part of the history about him not necessarily being relieved of the obsession, even after he made those amends and for a while. But of course, he continued to help others. Like, so he didn't necessarily have like the 10 step promises come true right away is is that right and what would what would you do with somebody if they like say they weren't uh they were still like the food was still calling to them on occasion and they were still maybe white knuckling a little bit around around that would you have them working with others and continuing to do that um as long as they don't get drunk you know or get um or pick up yeah, so on page, um, it is in Dr. Bob's story. It's on page 181. He says, I did not get over my craving for liquor much during the first two and one half years of abstinence. It was almost always with me. But at no time have I been anywhere near yielding. So I don't think that he was quite white knuckling, but it was um, a craving. So I would definitely tell someone at this point, to work with others. I mean, Dr. Bob worked with hundreds of people. Um, and I suspect that it was that working with other people that kept it, kept it um, from going, that kept it at craving instead of progressing into like full out obsession that he was unable to resist. So I would definitely tell someone to work with others. And why did he still have the craving for two and a half years? I have no idea, right? I could only guess, you know, it's like, I feel sad for Dr. Bob, right? A guy who worked this hard, but he says he was never any time, never anywhere near yielding. So that should give us some comfort that if we do the work, even though we may have cravings, we can still be protected. Thank Thanks. you, Stacey Kay, for your, hmm, thank you, Stacey Kay, for your question. Mia H, your question now, and then we're going to open up for those that have additional questions now. So, Mia, you're next. Hi, I'm Mia H, and thank you so much for your share. And I definitely um, got a lot out of the idea that God is on a search and rescue because I often feel as though I'm trying, trying, trying to seek him and I can't find him. Um, and it kind of goes with the question before. My question is about cravings. Um, it, especially at like a, the step. I'm at the I'm at the beginning. I I um, have relapsed, and it's been difficult to bring God into the craving to thwart it. I guess. Um, what is what What is your do you remember your process at the beginning on, on how you managed that? Um, and thank you. So again, so you're at, so I can just, I'll tell you my experience, but you know, this doesn't need to be taken as, as gospel. Right. But yes, we're like, I don't know that it was so much a process as well. I'll tell you what happens. I guess this was really the process. I was um, full-blown binging, and I went to a, I mean, I was stuffing bagel chips down my throat behind a locked bathroom door, and I went to a meeting, and at that meeting, I took a tough sponsor who I knew would let me get away with nothing, 
and I became willing to go to any length. I just said, I will do anything. And I remember thinking, I hope my sponsor doesn't tell me I need to move because this meeting was an hour and a half for me, that I don't have to move to like be right near that meeting because I'll just have to move an hour and a half away. Um, that's how desperate I was. And um, I went outside after the meeting. So I was willing to go to any length, which is a requirement to work the steps. I went outside and I just said, God, um, I've always had fixed ideas of what you're like and how to worship you. I'm willing to admit it's all wrong and to start over and let you show me what you're like and how to worship you. Um, and that was it. For me, the obsession pretty much left. Um, however, I right away began, I, I mean, I didn't realize at the time I'd really done steps one, two, and three, like informally without even knowing it. Um, so the obsession was removed. But, you know, still, I had a food plan, and it was a food plan that eliminated all my trigger foods. Um, and I just set about working the steps and doing what I knew. So right from day one, obviously, I couldn't go out and sponsor people, but I could be honest. And my sponsor had said to me, if you're dishonest, I will not sponsor you. So I right away started being honest. I started doing things to help other people. And I just set about working these steps quickly and doing what I was told. Um, but, you know, again, that was my experience. And then we see Dr. Bob, who worked a beautiful program, and he still had craving. But I think it's up to God to decide when the craving will go away. Um, but my job is to do this work and to trust in the promises. And what I generally tell people is that the, it's at step five. Um, let me get the exact words. After we do our fifth step where it says um, one of the promises, the feeling that the drink problem or for us the food problem has disappeared will often come strongly. So the book doesn't really tell us we should expect that until after step five. Um, so, and then after step nine, of course, it says, you know, we will seldom be interested in liquor or for us food, not on our food plan. But so I think to circle back at the beginning, what was important to me was to surrender absolutely, um, to get a sponsor who really knew this book, to get a food plan that didn't have my trigger foods on it and to just keep my keep my head to the ground and do the work and oh i also at the very beginning no one gave me this assignment i gave it to myself to spend 45 minutes a morning each morning with god i just said i'll spend 15 in spiritual reading 15 in prayer and 15 in meditation and I think that also helped tremendously cultivating a relationship with God. Thanks. Thank you very much, Mia H., for your question this morning. Anyone else have a question for Janet? Chris G. Mar Joanne Marla. Joanne Marla. L. Marla S. Patricia A. Irene B. Patricia H. And Irene, is that what you said? Irene? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Sharon B. Sharon B. This may be our last lineup, so I want to make sure we catch everybody, and hopefully we can get to everyone this morning. Okay, so let's go with Chris G. first, followed by Joanne L. Your question, Chris, good morning. Uh, yeah, this is just a quick question. I remember going to an AA meeting and being given a, a piece of paper that had a prescription on it from Dr. Bob where it said, trust God and help others. Have, have you seen that? No. Oh. I oh. never saw I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I've just, I never heard that. Oh, well, that's why you didn't mention it. Thank you. Okay. I'll just poke my nose in a little bit, too. It, it is out there, a quick um, outside issue. Google search will find it for you. Okay, next person with a question is Joanne L. Good morning, Joanne. Good morning. This is Joanne L. from Ohio. Um, I, I think it's a two-part question. If Dr. Bob was still having cravings, I guess I was told, or my understanding is that um, once you remove the substance from your system, the cravings will stop. So it confuses me that he was still craving after two and a half years. And the other question then would be, so you do not have to be recovered to sponsor? Um, my understanding of recovered is that you know, you don't have the food thoughts obsession with it anymore. And I guess I thought um, Dr. Bob's malady was that he was still obsessed with the with the alcohol, not that he was craving it. So I, I'm I'm just really confused about those two aspects. Um, if you remove the substance, shouldn't the cravings go away after a period of time? which I didn't think would, you know, be as much as two years. And um, can you sponsor when you're not recovered from, you know, the obsession or, or compulsion or the craving of food? And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thanks. So, so I'm not sure when they use the word craving, when he uses the word craving, um, what he's talking about. Clearly, he wasn't drinking, so it wasn't, um, so if it's true, and again, I, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know how long it takes a substance to clear from the body, but I would assume two and a half years, it's cleared. So I don't know if by that he means a mild obsession, a low-level obsession, or whatever, but I, to me, it's not important. And if, for me, if I spend too much time thinking about that, then it detracts from the miracle of his recovery and what he did and the hundreds and maybe it may even be thousands of people that he personally helped. Um, and I think the qualifications to sponsor someone is that we go through the steps and we have a spiritual awakening. So I, again, I don't feel expert enough um, like I'm qualified to comment on like kind of the subtleties of how much craving is okay and what constitutes it. I, I don't mean to try and like ignore the question or make little of it. I just really don't feel competent to say anything more than I did. Thank you very much, Marla. As for your question, Patricia, Patricia H. is next and then Irene will follow. 
Good morning. This is Patricia H. from North Carolina. Thank you so much, Janet, for your share. I am new to OA, and I just have one quick question. Would you mind defining um, white knuckling to me? Because I've heard that quite a bit in this program, and I don't know what it means. So I think it means where, I think, again, um, it's not in the big book, right? So people may have different definitions. But it's like before someone works the steps and they're kind of dieting or trying to do it without spiritual help, and they're able to not go off their diet or their food plan, but it's really, really hard. Like, it's so hard that they're balling their fists and their knuckles are turning white, right? It's, it's, um, it's not in a state of relaxed abstinence that we're relaxed because we know we're doing the right thing and we're being taken care of. Thanks. Thank you very much, Patricia. Mm, Patricia H. for your question. Irene B., your question. And then Sharon follows. Good morning. Thank you so much for your service. Um, you know, I came in late into the meeting because a fellow told me that it was a fabulous meeting. So um, my question, may, may, you may have already addressed it, and I apologize for that. But I'm a recovered bulimic, and, um, and when I hear about people binging and purging six times a day, uh, I relate. And, you know, and I don't know what it is about me that I still... I felt so lost for 40 years, question. I still feel like, how do people recover from bulimia? And this may be too basic, and it's too shallow for the depth and beautiful presentation that you've provided. But for me, the mental obsession is greater than anything else. And I just wanted to see if you could talk anything about that please so if i understand you correctly your question is about recovery from bulimia and the mental obsession that goes with it and how you recover from that because to me that's the most difficult part i'm five years after them from bulimia but the mental obsession i mean it's, it's a mess so because life is difficult and i can't cope with difficulties okay so for me um the recovery from bulimia was the same exact as recovering from plain old compulsive eating, right? The, the book says either God is everything or else he is nothing. God, it, he, God wouldn't be God if he could remove part of the obsession, but not all of it. So, um, so like to remove the compulsive eating, but not the bulimia or the other way around. So for me, it was all part and partial the same. And the way for the obsession to be removed um, is through working the steps, right? It promises us that by um, step 12, step 12 is, starts with a promise, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. You know, our souls are rewired and the obsession um, basically gets kicked to the curb. So I found it just by working these steps the way they are in the book. Thanks. Thank you very much, Irene B. For your question, Sharon, you're up next. I didn't get the initial of your last name, so I hope the Sharon that asked is there. Uh, yes. Um, thank you, Melanie, and thank you, Janet, 
um, amazing. Uh, my question is, when walking um, a sponsee through the ABCs, and you were talking about the five blocks to believing that God would if thought, how do you work through each of those and what are they? Thank you. Okay, um, thanks. Let me just, so that I remember them right, I just, I'm just going to pull up my, pull up my notes so that I have them. So give me two seconds. Okay, um, some, someone might say, I don't deserve it because I've done this really bad thing, right? So therefore God could, but he won't because I've done this really bad thing or bad things. And if that's the case, then we remind our sponsees that in the ninth step, we'll get a chance to make amends. Um, the second reason is someone might say, well, I caused this. He might help people with, you know, cancer, but, you know, I caused this illness. But, you know, and then I would say, well, if I'm crossing the street and I don't look both ways and I get hit by a truck and break both legs, would I tell the ambulance driver, don't take me to the hospital because it's my fault. So I, I have no right to bother the doctor. Like, of course we wouldn't do it. But when it comes to God, suddenly, you know, sometimes we get noble. Like, no, I can't go to God because it's my fault. I've been selfish and self-centered. So I just say, bother God. It's okay. Um, the third thing is sometimes people just say, I don't deserve it because I'm not worthy. There's just this vague sense of, like, shame, that, like, I'm just not worthy. And, you know, I say, okay, fine, you might spend $50,000 in therapy to get a therapist to tell us, you know, to tell you that you're worthy. And I'll say, maybe you are, maybe you're not worthy. I certainly was not worthy of God restoring me to sanity. But worthiness is not a requirement. You will not find that once in the big book. Willingness is. So I would tell my sponsor, okay, maybe you're not worthy. Like I wasn't, so that's fine. As long as you're willing, God can restore you to sanity. The fourth thing is someone might say, I've tried it so many times before and it doesn't work. And what I do then is I hold up my cell phone and I tell them, if I tried to take a picture with my phone a hundred times by pushing this on off button, which I've done, um, and it fails all a hundred times. And then my kid shows me, how to use the camera button and says, mom, you've been doing it wrong these hundred times. Here's how to do it. Suddenly I can take pictures, even if I hadn't been able to a hundred times, right? Sometimes we just need to be shown the right button and be willing to use it. And then the fifth reason someone may say, I'm not sure I'm really seeking him. Well, that's legit, right? They say, well, God would if I were seeking him, but I'm not sure I'm seeking him. And then I would ask her to make a list of what she's not doing that she thinks she should be doing. And if she really isn't doing something, then I would say, you're right, because then you're not willing and willingness is a requirement. So for instance, if she says, if I'm a sponsor and I tell her I want her to go to three meetings a week, and she says, yeah, no, I'm not willing to go to any meetings a week, then I would say, okay, maybe you don't have the willingness. And in that case, I'm probably not the right sponsor for you. I have found for most people, the reason is number three, I don't feel worthy. And then what a beautiful thing. Our God doesn't require worthiness, only willingness. Thanks.
Thank you very much, Sharon B., for your question. Hey, it looks like time might allow for two more questions. Who might have a question for Janet this morning as we go Marla? through the process of wrapping up? Marla, Marla asked you had one already or no? Um, no, you didn't get to me yet, Melanie. A new Marla or somebody else. No, I called on another Marla. I'm the same Marla. I just didn't get called on yet. Well, I'm so sorry. I must have made a mistake then. Okay. So Hi, this excellent. is Jenny. I have a question. Okay, Jenny. Those will be the two we're going to start with, and we'll inch along. My apologies again, Marla, for skipping over you. Your question, please. It's okay. Can you still hear me? Uh, loud and clear. Okay, good. Hey, Janet, wonderful, wonderful job. So thorough. Um, thank you. I was hoping you could maybe expand a little bit on your discussion about making other people idols, uh, your, your talk about your children. Um, I have, that's the part I've struggled with so much is my son is in addiction right now, active addiction. And I struggle with making other people or other situations idols. How did you, what was your process in making the real God, your God, instead of like your kids that you talked about? Thank you. That's and I, I'm sorry for what you're going through. That must be very, very hard. So I, I'm, I'm sorry you have to go through that. Um, the first thing was recognizing it, right? That I was making an idol out of my kids. And then I decided I was just going to treat idolatry like any other defect. So I inventoried it to see how it was manifesting, shared it with another person, asked God to remove it, and then practiced the opposite which was intentionally keeping God on the throne and keeping my focus on what God would have me do. So that was my process. Thanks. Thank you very much, Thanks. Marla, for your question. Jenny S., your question, please. Hi, this is Jenny. Can I be heard? Loud and clear. Okay, great. Um, I know in my own recovery, the only way I've been able to stay sober on a one day to one day basis is through the spiritual awakening that I experienced. Um, what, at what step did you experience your spiritual awakening? So it's funny for me, as I said, the obsession was like, it was like one minute it was there. I made a decision to go to any length and gave my life to God and it was gone. But as far as everything else, I would say that I'm still in the middle of it. It's like I, for a while I just kept my head down and then looked back and it's like, and now I was someone who never got 30 days together in my first seven years. Sometimes like I couldn't make it to lunch. And it was like, oh my gosh, it's been a week. It's been a month. It's been three months and I'm not reacting the same way. And so I would say, honestly, I had the removal of the obsession right away. But as far as the personality change, um, it's still continuing. Unfortunately, I still see evidence sometimes of how I have not been um, totally changed yet. But um, I think it's still unfolding. Thanks. Thank you very much, Jenny S. Hey, you know what? I think we can squeeze another question out of you up for it, Janet. Sure. Okay. Anyone else like to ask the question? Maybe perhaps the final question. Alicia asked. 
Felicia S. You got it. Your question, please. Thank you. Hey, Janet, thank you so much for your presentation today and everyone for doing service. Can you give us a little insight to what your 10, 11, and 12 look like today, please? Um, yep, I only have a couple minutes, so I'm going to talk Jersey, talk really fast. Um, so I do a review, right? If I catch myself doing something I shouldn't, um, having a resentment, I take care of it right away. I do a nightly review, and I have a partner that she and I do it together. We send it to each other. We talk every day about stuff that's going on. Um, I ask God to remove my defects. I have, as I mentioned before, a 45-minute, often it's more, sometimes it's a little less, but generally it's 45 minutes to an hour of a morning quiet time where I read spiritual literature, I'll read the Bible, I'll read a devotional. I've looked up devotionals that the founders of AA studied, and I generally use those. Um, so I'll do some reading, I'll pray, and my prayer time consists of gratitude, praise of God. So I'll just like sing him a worship song um, and be happy that he doesn't care how awful my voice is. Um, and then I'll pray for people and situations and strength. And then I'll generally set a timer for about 15 minutes and ask for God, what would you have me do today? Give me knowledge of your will and the power to carry it out, and how can I help the still-suffering compulsive eater? And if there's another question on my mind, I'll ask. A lot of times I get nothing. Sometimes I'll get pages of inspiration. And step 12, I sponsor a decent amount of people. Um, I do a lot of work with other compulsive eaters, like doing workshops and, you know, speaking a lot. And I try to practice the principles of honesty, unselfishness, um, things like that in all my affairs. And I think that's it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Felisa. And that will be the last question for today for Janet. And thanks again, Janet, for giving so much of yourself today, your experience, strength, and hope, and your willingness to dig in and do some deeper study to bring to us the life of something that is so relevant to pattern our particular suffering over to the hope and glory and the promise of recovery. Thanks again so much. We will now close this meeting this morning like we always do by reading from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you, don't, you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you 